Thank you for listening to the Jew 3 Project podcast. As you know, um, we're pausing our Church Hurt series and we're playing 2018 Courageous Conversations, releasing it on the podcast for the first time ever. And so we're excited. Make sure you register for Courageous Conversations 2019. It is Jew 3 Project's initiative to pair um, scholars, pastors, and thought leaders from progressive and conservative spaces to talk about things relevant for the church and the culture. And this year we have a great lineup of 28 um, people to help us navigate topics like hell, um, interpreting the Old Testament, sin, truth, um, and many others. So join us August 1st and 2nd in Atlanta at the Greater Piney Grove um, Baptist Church. You can register at CourageousCombos.org. Um, Make sure if you want to register with a group, there is a group rate for 10 or more of $60, which I think is amazing. And if you don't register um, before the event and you choose to register at the door, remember the price goes up. So make sure you register um, before uh, the actual day of if you want to save. Um, Without further ado, let's get into today's Courageous Convo on Gospel Preaching. And I look forward to seeing you at Courageous Conversations. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Today's Courageous Conversation is gospel preaching. What is gospel preaching? And we have four dynamic preaching professors to help us sort through this topic. The first is Dr. Teresa Fry Brown. She's the Brandy Bandy Preaching Professor at Candler School of Theology at Emory University. The second is Dr. Frank Thomas. He is the professor of homiletics at the Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis. The third is Dr. Kim Credit, who is not only a professor, but the senior pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church in New Jersey. The fourth is Dr. Kevin Smith, who is the Christian preaching professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Well, this is gonna be fun uh, today. Dr. Credit, let's start with you because you mentioned uh, preaching the gospel. And this will be something that, unless there is a readily universal agreement on, that everybody can chime in on. Uh, What is the gospel and what does the gospel do? I guess I want to begin with what does the gospel do? Okay. Um... I want to ask that question versus what it should do. Okay. Okay. Uh, what it should do, as I believe it's laid out in scripture, is it should transform. Mm. Uh, wherever it meets a person, it should transform that person, whether it's spiritually, mentally, socially, um, emotionally. The gospel is meant to transform. And so I have a transformational de- program, the uh, Doctor of Ministry program that I designed is uh, called Transformational Preaching, and um, because that's my view of of preaching. I I have a little slogan that I I like to use that helps help describe what I mean by that, and I often state to preachers that the effects of preaching were never meant to conclude with the preaching hour. Hmm. And so it has to go beyond just preaching but it has to really transform people. And the only way to do that is to do what we see Jesus having done in, 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 in the scripture. Gotcha, so. gotcha. Someone now, thank you. Someone now want to chime in on what the gospel is? You know, for me, that is an inbreaking of God to turn upside down human order. human values and human structures. It's, we were reading in the PhD program, uh, Ed Farley and Andre Reznor, who said, it's also apocalyptic and eschatological that we have the down payment, that we've experienced the down payment of the inbreaking of Christ, the Christ event. I keep saying that's gonna be important to me in this discussion the Christ event that turns upside down 
human order, human structures, human systems, and human values, such that the things that we're used to, or we would normally think that adults are closer to God than children, when in fact children might be closer to God than adults. That we might think that the celebrated ones are the ones who are closer to God, but it might be that the marginalized are closer to God. It might be that we think people in the global north are closer to God, when in fact the folks in global south may be closer to God. That, and that what that means for me, and, I, and I'll stop, is that God overturns privilege in Christ. The Christ event fundamentally overturns privilege. At whatever level of privilege a person has. So I have to grapple with the fact that as an African-American male, and particularly in the black church, I have privilege. But the Christ event that upends the normal order of things challenges me to reorient my privilege in different ways. So define for us what you mean by Christ event, and is that distinct from the advent of Christ? When I say a Christ event, I, I think that what we reduce Jesus to is a life coach. I, um, you know, I come to church to be made healthy, wealthy, and wise. And it's really an e event. It's a mystery that we try to capture in language like Jesus is Lord or Christ crucified. But it's an event that's a mystery and that we, as Howard John Wesley just said a moment ago, as stewards of the mysteries, we are stewards of mysteries, of things that we speak to try to bring to reality, but the gospel is always bigger than our way and our ability to express it. So when I say an event, that's what I mean. It's, it's not just a doctrine. It's a locus of action. An event involves action and activity and involvement. And I think that what we reduce the gospel to is a life application message. Um, sometimes, like, favor ain't fair. Your haters are your elevators. We've reduced, that's what I mean. So I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, no, that's good. I want to push just one bit further because I've heard you use language like message. I, I think of Aretha Franklin's funeral as an event. I mean, that was like a really long event um, <laughs> in, in one sense. But so for perhaps for people like me who, who don't share the sophistication and who, but who've read you um, quite a bit, are you saying that the gospel then is the message or it's the person of Christ, it's the life of Christ, or narrow in for me just a wee bit more, Dr. Thomas, on, on event there? It's all of that and more. Okay. That we never exhaust the gospel. Somewhere in the literature, when they ask me for readings, I, I, I put in a reading by Ed Farley and Andre Reznor who are talking about this mysterion, this apocalyptic, this is here but it's not yet. You know, it's an inbreaking, but we don't have the full, and this, this mystery, this, and I think we've lost, we've lost the ability to translate mm. a mystery mm. to uh, church people who are coming every Sunday, who are looking for encouragement, who are looking for a better life, and it's very difficult to translate the Christ event. Mm. So uh, that's just the newest part of my thinking, so I probably can't do a really no, that's good, good job. I, no, absolutely. Thank you. I think the gospel is that declaration from scripture of the unique person and work of Jesus Christ to everyone, as he says, the poor, the incarcerated, uh, to Jew, to Gentile, male, female, Galatians. Um, that specifically identifies who he is and what he has done and why it matters. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? 
So who he is, what he's done, and why it matters. And what it should do is call those who have not previously been followers of Christ to faith in him and trust in him. Um, maybe some of the thesis of John, I wrote these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and believing in him, you might have life. And it should sanctify or build up or make more righteous, more godly, more holy, those who say, I have believed upon him, um, his lordship. So love your neighbor means something because he said it. Yeah. And since I have trusted in who he is and I am following him, then I want to love my late neighbor. And that certainly has community and societal and other type implications. But I think it's that unique message about his unique person, his uh, unique work and why that matters. Mm-hmm. Um, that question in Matthew, who do you who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? Um, is at the core of the Christ event why he came. So I would start the Christ event with a prophecy. Hmm. And hmm. Uh, so for me, the gospel includes the, the prophecy of the coming of the Christ, hmm. this person that we know as the Christ, the life, the ministry, the promise of Christ, hmm. post-resurrection Christ hmm. also. Mm-hmm. And then for me, the event is not only that we're naming these things about Christ, but then what do we do with it? Mm. Or do we try to fashion a Christ that we keep in a box or on a wall? So how does that, whatever that prophecy, the the charismatic part of it, what does that do that now we take on not being Christ, as too many preachers are, but we take on how do you as an individual, how do I as an individual live what I'm now saying? Mm what I say I believe, or do I continue to have a list of barriers that have exceptionality, that um, this person is included but not this person? So what Christ am I talking about? So I think we get kind of boxed into who we say Christ is and not look at what Christ does in us. That's what I want to say. So let me follow up on this end, because so far... And and not that anybody intended this, but I think you're the only person I've heard mention pre-gospel as a genre of scripture, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. gospel implications through prophecy. Would I be correct in saying, therefore, that you see in the prophets of the Old Testament the gospel? I think that, yes. Okay, gotcha. Okay. (laughs) I, I, I mean, if... Biblical, I'm not a biblical scholar, but I do understand that Isaiah is quoted more in the New Testament than any other prophet. And some call that the fifth gospel. Yeah. Right. And so there's some, even though we misname some parts of the Old Testament and say this is Christ. Right. Uh, I think that there, there's always some, it's, it's when I was, when I was carrying my daughter, I didn't know her, but I knew she was on the way. Right. And so, <laughs> and so once she was born, I still had a connection to who I thought she was before she arrived. So I can't use that illustration, and that's really unfair because, okay. I mean, automatically as a preacher, what I'm doing is how can I take this and okay, make this as my own? my point of view. I just <laughs> yeah. do it from my point of view. Uh, but but that's that's why I do that connection. So there's there, uh, some of the last panel talked about the mystery right. of it all because I think sometimes and, and I joke with some of my my students uh, when we talk about the difference between baby Jesus and full grown Jesus. But I also want to talk to them about the incubating Jesus and what that faith system means, what that means in faith. I think ours is the best panel of them all. Uh, <laughs> don't you agree? Because we get to talk about preaching. Like, and what is better than preaching? Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can think of one thing in life that's better than preaching. But the, <laughs> no, 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 guys. No, no, no. Sometimes. Going to heaven <laughs> is the one thing better than preaching. Got all of these millennials in here, man. I mean, just, um, why are there so many competing definitions of the word gospel? I mean, you know, the Gospel Coalition has theirs, and, and then Virginia Union has theirs, and um, 
you, you name it. And all of this has implications for preaching. So we can get to the question, what does it mean to preach the gospel? Well, why do we have so many competing definitions? I think in a fallen world with saints who have not yet apprehended, we are constantly seeking to express, I think one of the early panelists used the term um, a whole gospel or a whole understanding of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. We're constantly seeking to address those holes. And so, for example, in the early 20th century, when there's great poverty in hell's kitchen and people who say they are followers of Jesus Christ um, who said love your neighbor and told the parable of the great Samaritan don't seem to care about it then you have Christianity and the social crisis and you get something called a social gospel when there's dehumanizing of black people uh, you can get an approach to the gospel that wants to make sure we affirm the Genesis 127 humanity of all people. And that can be called a black gospel or a Hispanic gospel when there is objectification and misogyny regarding sisters. Then there's an approach to look in a holistic understanding of the gospel. This is sinful and we need to address that. Well, as we address these holes or truncation, truncated aspects of people's understanding of the gospel, many times those things get labeled. Many of those approaches are good and honorable and godly. Then we also have bastardly, devilish, satanic kind of approaches like I'm greedy, I'm materialistic, I'm consumeristic, but I need church folk to believe it. So let me call it the prosperity gospel. Um, so whether the additional titles or whether the add-ons are honorable or full of hell, it's because people are trying to either address holes in a holistic gospel or people have some kind of other agenda like uh, white supremacy, justifying slavery or greed, materialism or consumerism. So you brought up this notion of social gospel. I'd never really fully heard that until I went to seminary. Um, and it's probably because of where I went to seminary. And it was like white people didn't. No offense, by the way, I'm just. It, to the non-black people in the room, I'm just, but it was just like these persons um, were trying to um, categorize uh, certain movements in America and groups of preaching that they didn't necessarily espouse, or at least that's what it was told until, that's what we were told until you see like Robert Jeffers coming out saying, well, uh, Trump is the most whatever, whatever. Clearly that's a social interpretation, wrongful one of the gospel. Um, since we have these holes, is there a difference between what one calls the social gospel and the gospel? I think that we have all of us a working canon, a canon in the canon. I think we all have a working gospel. Hmm. In other words, we might claim that we all we preach the whole Bible when in fact we do not preach the whole Bible. There are certain texts that we will not slaves be obedient to your masters. It was preached to us. And our ancestors went over and found tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. So we prioritize the text. So we raised up, tell old Pharaoh to let my people go up at the top, and we brought this text about slaves be obedient to your masters, or as we heard this morning, um, you know, women obey your husband. We heard these texts that are problematic texts. We prioritize. Then we call our prioritization theology. You know, theology is a ranking of texts. Some texts are more authoritative. It's a canon in a canon. And from our theology, then we develop interpretation, hermeneutics. And from hermeneutics, we do preaching. And so you have, in my mind, different gospels because you have different working gospels because people start from different places, many times our own experiences. And while, in fact, um, some interpretations are 
racist or untrue or misogynistic that's true, at least we have to start by admitting that we don't preach the whole Bible. We have a canon in a canon, and we have a working gospel. And from our working gospel, we go to theology, theology to interpretation, hermeneutics, and hermeneutics to preaching. So I think that's why we have so many different gospels, and the way that I kind of resolve it is I'm not interested in debating people about what they believe. I want to know how what you believe functions in relationship to other people. Mm. So you take your belief and you either support or inflict what public policy, Mm. what statues. So I think that a lot of people focus on right belief. Mm. So we'll argue over scripture, what we, what's the right belief when in fact for me, it's the right action. Mm. So how do we behave with what we believe is the question. So you can articulate your gospel to me, but when you get through, I'm looking at, okay, then how, how do you behave with that gospel? And when you demean people and you disparage people and you disrespect people, then I can't hear your gospel, no matter how right it is. So that's why I believe that there are so many different gospels, because in truth, we all start with a working gospel. And, and I think I would I, I agree. I was raised Baptist in Missouri, so I was real Baptist. We never <laughs> we never went home from church. And and there's this song: if you've got that old time religion, you should show some sign. And I didn't understand it until I became Methodist, where we talk about the difference between personal holiness and social holiness. And the element that says that, yes, I have these pietistic understandings of what I'm supposed to do, but I also have to demonstrate my belief by doing things to make sure that the barriers are down and everybody's included. And that I I have this is where social gospel comes in. Uh, we talk about Walter Rauschenbusch, but we forget Reverdy Ransom sometime. And, and his understanding that what I preach on Sunday, I have to live Sunday night. So I can't say love everybody and then act like I don't see them the rest of the week. And so I, in fact, have to then do what I'm telling people from the pulpit we're supposed to do. I have to demonstrate the love of Christ. I have to demonstrate what my faith is by making sure that no one is hungry, that no one is in prison, and all those other kinds of things. And so these interpretations, because we all enter a text with our own lens, I don't, everybody, because we come from different social locations, even if we look the same skin-wise, um, puts out different gospels, because I'm sure when I sit next to people that my interpretation of the biblical text comes from who Teresa is not who you are. And my living out of that text, I cannot live out the text like everyone else because I have different experiences with both God and the world. So I'm going to articulate a different gospel when I stand up. Even in the midst of a denomination that says I'm supposed to believe this, I can only say what I believe. right? And so I also have to respect somebody else's gospel, not demean it. I don't understand prosperity gospel, but I will not demean it in such a way to say those people are going to hell because they believe that. Because there are people that think I'm going to hell because I validate the, the whole personage of women. That, that, I, that I don't see any need to damn people whose sexuality might be different from mine. And so then I'm looked at as having this skewed gospel because it, it may not be what five people in the room think and I'm one, the, the sixth person. So that is the different canon that we all work from. So I, I do have a follow-up question, um, but I, I do want to say this in the spirit of not uh, hurting anyone. I, when I was talking about going to seminary and the, some of the white people I interact with, I'm not saying that specifically to offend anyone. I, and I hate the terminology, sometimes liberal and conservative, but on either side, I think it's fair to say that African-American people have been manipulated by the dominant culture at times in both liberal institutions and conservative institutions. Um, and so that is no, that is not casting dispersion on anyone in this room who is not black. It's just, I've been there. I've lived that. Um, and I know of which I speak. And so I don't want to offend anybody in that needlessly, but I just 
I want to lay that out. Let me ask this as a follow-up and uh, feel free to chime in however you'd like. How does one's understanding of the gospel lead you in the work of scriptural interpretation? How, how does one's understanding of the gospel lead you into the work of scriptural interpretation? We can just get one answer and move on. Yeah. One is um, to Dr. Thomas's point about a whole Bible. Um, if you understand the gospel to be about the unique person and work of Jesus Christ, and Jesus said that the law and the prophets and the Psalms testify of me, then part of faithful gospel preaching is doing the hard work of seeking to study, interpret, and proclaim. And if you're in a pastor role, leading people to apply the truth of all of Scripture. Um, you know, sometimes in different circles, I mean, people say, well, there's such and such a gospel, this or such and such is a gospel. I mean, if you say you've been changed by the gospel and the gospel's in the scripture, then uh, yeah, yes, yes, it's, it's a gospel issue if that's what you need to make you feel like you ought to obey the words of scripture. Um, so it's fundamental that, I, I think it's fundamental that an interpretation of scripture is constantly looking at all of scripture. I'm going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. So how can someone, if they want to get involved with Dude 3 and support this amazing uh, event that you have and just everything that Dude 3 does, how can they get involved? Well, one of the major ways they can get involved is to donate. Mm -hmm. um, the Jude 3 Project not only reaches, impacts churches, but we also have an HBCU tour where okay. we engage students on campuses around the topic of Christianity being the white man's religion, and we combat Very that false good. narrative. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things we do is we raise support to help fund um, the HBCU tour so that the schools won't have to, to pay for that. So one of the ways that people can support us mm -hmm. in reaching students is to give at Jude3project.com, or they can mail in their gift and their there's an address at Jude3project.com to mail in your gift if you want to do it that way as well. Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, I always challenge students, if you see this little rolled up part, that's the epistles. And a lot of, quote, Bible-believing American Christianity is very uh, epistolary. Um, and so if you're preaching that much out of the whole scripture, I don't know how you can think I have a corner on the market on what it absolutely means to follow Christ, and also how you can think that I'm fully declaring what Jesus said we should declare if he said that all of the scripture is a testimony of himself. Good deal. Good deal. All right, so let's get to this. What is gospel preaching, and is it relevant today? Um, part of the reason I ask on the back end, I saw Mark Lamont Hill talk once about how he went to, it might have been a Jay-Z concert or something, he said it felt more like church to him than, or, or what it used to be. He clearly hadn't been to our church, um, <laughs> but, but there, there are whole sections of uh, emerging young people who do not see the relevance of the preacher uh, anymore or preaching. So however you'd like, and let's hear from everybody, uh, what is gospel preaching, and is it relevant today? If so, why? So I have a hard time understanding um, when people define the gospel as anything other than what we see in the gospel accounts. The life, the teaching, the example of Jesus Christ how he interacted with people. He taught, he preached, and he always acknowledged and met the needs of the person that was in front of him. So with that being said, um, I know the question is always asked, so it can be a rhetorical question, what would Jesus do? And I like to answer that question with, what did Jesus do? Why do we ask the question, what would he do, when clearly we have four documented examples um, in, in his teachings that tells us exactly what he did, you know, and what his view of ministry and how important people were to him is right, right in the example. Um, so to define, to label a gospel anything other, 
other than uh, what we see in the gospel accounts, to me, is baffling, to be honest. And so um, if we, in my opinion, if we're not mirroring exactly what we see in the gospel accounts, then we're not teaching the gospel, we're not living the gospel, and we're certainly not an example of the gospel. And it has to be inclusive. So we don't get, to me, the preacher becomes dangerous um, in doctrine and in practice when they choose to isolate a part of the gospel and make that more important than other aspects of the gospel. And I'll say this, um, even when we choose particular cultures or people over the next, and that could be Caucasian and African-American, that's just not the gospel message to be um, um, exclusive in that sense. So I I have this view of Jesus being um, exclusive doctrinally, (laughs) Um, while being very inclusive in a ministry sense. Okay, okay. Let's keep going. I think, um, and this is is my particular hermeneutic, this is me, since you gave that disclaimer. Uh, What I try to say to my students, I, I teach a class called Preaching Language and Popular Culture. And what I'm very clear about from that class is that the directives from Jesus live not only within the pages of whatever Bible one is carrying, but what's in in the world. And so if someone finds the same sentiments in different language in a song by Jay-Z, or in Lecrae, or in Toni Morrison, or something of that nature, I think that you use that illustratively with the biblical text. Uh, the, The young the younger students, since I've been around for a minute, the, the younger students that I'm working with uh, have not thrown the biblical text out, but I think they have been given license to see God at work in the world more readily in different genre of music and literature and other things, and it's always been there. If we go back to classical texts, if we I use Plato in sermons. Um, and my grandmother probably would never have heard anyone use Plato, even in the classical era of black preaching. But I think that for me, it is both how does the word live in the world? Where is Where are the actions of the Christ figure seen in what we do in the world? And why limit it to the epistles? Or why limit it to the four Gospels? Because somewhere in the text, biblical scholars will help me later, it says we don't have everything that Jesus said. It's in there someplace. It's in the book, right? Somewhere in the Bible. It's in, it says that not all of it is there. So how am I going to be one to limit that to just those books? I'm curious real might fast. might be elsewhere. So we don't have like a teleporting machine back to ancient Middle Eastern Nazareth. Mm -hmm. How do we know what else he said, even though it's not there? And And how do we know it's not there? It's not in the book. How how do we know that the other things he said is not in the book? Okay, so let me put it this way. I'm an editor also. And there's sometimes when a manuscript comes across, I start dropping stuff because it doesn't fit. So when someone sees a book, you don't know if that's what the author wrote in the first place. It's whoever the editors were, whoever had the pen that changes the man, changes what's going on. Right. And so I want my students to have an open enough mind to say who was left out because people that look like me were left out on the regular. And so I am opening the text wide enough to see myself in. So why not imagine that there's more that is not in what we say is our canon that I can also use right. exemplary I guess what's going on. What I'm asking is where would you send me? and say, here are the words I wouldn't. of Jesus. I want you to explore that for yourself. I think it's too controlling of me to tell you, even as a preacher, when I select a text and I'm saying whatever God has worked out in my head, I'm really clear that I don't have the definitive answer. That there's enough room for someone to disagree with me or have their own interpretation, and I'm good with that. Because, number one, I don't want to be responsible for where they're going. Right? i got my own stuff to worry about. But my job is for me to say something to stand before someone. And so 
I have that openness, if we're going to talk about the multiplicity of Gospels, to also say, why did this end here? And then investigate that for myself, to interrogate the text, to interrogate why it ended here and why someone put that in or left it out. So I usually tell my students, your job is to also interrogate because I don't have your eyes. I don't have your ears. I do the same thing in Bible study. I cannot give you all the answers. I grew up in a system that said, this is the answer. You can't ask any questions. So I don't do that now. When I was a child, I spake as a child, but I'm not there anymore. And so I don't want my students to be infantile in their approach to the text or in their pulling together of a sermon either. One thing that's helpful is to have a certain humility in gospel. You say it's irrelevant. One thing that is is well-received in our culture is some authenticity and humility and the ability to acknowledge the scripture is a, uh, in John's language, it's a sufficient revelation of Jesus Christ, but it's not an exhaustive revelation of Jesus Christ. And so when you say, what is the gospel? The gospel is a sufficient message. It's not an exhaustive message. And I think sometimes the posture, uh, uh, well, one way to make preaching irrelevant is to have a posture of uh, omniscience and rather than a posture of um, from the Bible, we know in part, we prophesy in part, we see in part. Uh, so the relevance of gospel preaching is very much tied up into the personality, the, the, the attributes of the one proclaiming the message, message, whether or not they have an air of omniscience or whether they have an air of, as Dr. Wesley said, hey, we are holding the mysteries of the faith and we are proclaiming these things that we have here in the scripture. So sufficiency, sufficient revelation versus an exhaustive revelation. Mm-hmm. Can mm-hmm. I go back to the yes, Jay-Z? I, I really get the, the, the Jay-Z question. Um, I wish that I could have people in church reciting scripture like they recite those lyrics at those concerts. I, I, I wish I could. I wish we, we had that. And I wrote two chapters in a book. First one was What Preachers Can Learn from Jay-Z about communication, about... And the second piece, he has a saying that, that struck me, um, I read Decoded, which is the best piece of exegetical work I've virtually read in the last 15 years, where he exegetes lyrics, experience, da, da, da. He has a piece, he says, the truth is always relevant. And so churches are trying to be relevant. Seminaries are trying to be relevant. Preachers are trying to be relevant. Well, the truth is always relevant. And what he's speaking to is the truth of the experience of people where the gospel, this is my interpretation, or what I try to do in my preaching, is to apply the Christ event to the experience of the people. The people have truths that they're grappling with. So, for example, I'm going to make this brief. One of the questions that I imagine that Jay-Z was grappling with is, why is it that uh, there's such poverty in uh, Marcy projects, and yet when he goes down on Fifth Avenue, um, he sees limos, fur coats, Rolls Royces, da-da-da, and yet when he comes to his neighborhood, broken out windows, no jobs, da-da-da-da, and then he goes to a church. So he's looking for the church to speak to why is it that we got limos on one side of the town, but in our neighborhood right here, we don't have any of that. And if the church is not speaking to that or applying Christ to that, then the church is not relevant because we've got these questions. And if the church is not willing to dialogue or, or debate or discuss or with the questions that we're asking, then we may as well go to the Jay-Z concert because he's rapping and he's giving lyrics that speak into our experience. So is Jay-Z, without the gospel, more relevant than a preacher preaching the gospel? Of course, I don't think so. I, I, I just love to hear the gospel preached. And I, I, loved, I love to hear the gospel calling for... Um, so what, what, this is what I think. I think that 
all of us need gospel encouragement. All of us need encouragement. The Lord will deliver. The Lord will save. We, we need that. We need the Lord is my strength. We need that. As African-American people, the Lord knows we need it. But we also need to be challenged. And we need to be called into a higher level of living. And what I'm looking for is for the preacher to call me to change. Invitationally, of course. And so I think that there's nothing better. There is nothing better than the gospel being preached by a preacher who's had an experience of Christ Jesus and experience of this text and can relate it to an audience and then and able to close with a hoop. It don't get there. Yes, sir. I'm talking about one that's connected to the sermon. Right, right. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Right. I'm not a hooper, but I sure wish I were. I mean, it lifts, it elevates, it's poetry, it's depth, it's honesty, it's challenging, it's inspiring, it's encouragement, mm-hmm. it's convicting. And when I say this last thing, and I'll stop because, you know, I run this in my classes, that, you know, we're so busy on trying to make people feel good. The Holy Ghost makes us feel good, how we mm-hmm. feel. Sometimes the Holy Spirit makes me mad. Sometimes the Holy Spirit yeah. challenges yeah, my yeah. sin. Sometimes... The Holy Spirit said, you need to go home and apologize. Yes. You need to make up. But oh, when the preacher lifts me, I, I, you know, I, that's why, I, you know, say one, one last thing. I was, I, I was a young, I was a young person coming out of, uh, coming, you know, I was a junior in college and, and a kid in the neighborhood was killed. One of my best friends in the neighborhood played a basketball team. We went to the funeral. We were despondent. Reverend L.K. Curry, 83rd in Damon. When he finished, I had hope. Mm. He preached the gospel and I said, how, is he, how does he do that? How do you take people from despair? And 20 minutes later, yes. we have hope. Yes. Jesus. When, when, it's, when, it's, when it's done well. When it's done well. Yes, when it's done well. And, and, I, and I agree with you as a preacher, and I'm of a certain generation, so I believe in gospel preaching. I also think that as homeleticians, we need to try to understand why there's a segment of the population that responds more to a Jay-Z and Beyonce concert, as my daughter just went last week, than to what we do on Sunday morning. And perhaps we're clowning too much on Sunday morning and not preaching the gospel. But they're finding the gospel in those lyrics. Because I wonder, uh, people that preceded my grandmother's generation that did not have their own vine and fig tree but some way they believed in Jesus. They did not read and write, but some way they believed in Jesus. Uh, they had a, 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 an internal understanding of who God was. Right. Right. right, And they were still saved. They were right. yet saved. Right. And so I, 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 want, I always want to look at what we're doing social historically, but I also want us to learn from what we're seeing so that we're not... I almost messed up. So... <laughs> So that we're not dumping, dumping stuff on people is not the gospel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Castigating people. Or killing them. Or killing them. Thank right. you. You know where I'm going. I right? killed last night. I killed last you night. Ki- I cannot stand it when people say I <laughs> yes, tore it up. Thank no, you very I, much. No, no. I, I, you know, I dumped the house. I yes, dumped sir. the house. I tore down the house. I yes, killed sir. it. I slayed them. And I keep thinking, where is Jesus in that language? <laughs> How do we talk about the edifying love and building up of Jesus if we're now using violent and destructive language to describe what was just done? And so, and so I think that for in the, in, if, if we believe that, or I believe, in social gospel, I also want to know what's reaching the people. I can't preach using Jay-Z's language because I'm 67 years old, but I can refer to it. Yes, Lord. The Lord is amazing. And, <laughs> and, and, and so, I, but I need to be aware of it. All right. When my grandmother was 100, she was reading rap lyrics and listening to it, so she would be aware of what the children were responding to. And I think that's where we might mess up. We start limiting to it. This is the only form you can use, but it might be something over there we need to at least be aware of. Or growing up, the people that were left over from Saturday night on the corner recovering from celebrating. Uh, 
sometimes lived the gospel more than the people that came in and listened to the preacher. So I don't, I don't want to ever make it just the pulpit ministry. So uh, Lisa's told me we've got two minutes. And I know, I know, I know. Um, and I've done my best not to give my opinion on much of anything. Um, so I, I wish I could. But before we go, uh, as a word of encouragement, um, what would you, where would you point people to in terms of books or resources? Let me just say this. Um, I mean, hopefully my book comes out next year, but, uh, where do, i I never got to go to Bishop College. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I wish it still existed for a number of reasons, whatever people may say of it, but where do we send young people who are training as preachers? And not just schools, not just institutions, but to resources, to books, to churches, to places. Um, what would you recommend? One or two. You don't, you don't have to give your whole syllabus. but And I'll point out all your books. Um, they never like to quit praising God. Introduction to African-American preaching, which just came out. And uh, just see if they'll let you into one of his classes in Indianapolis uh, so that you get it. But, but we greatly appreciate all, all of those things. So you don't feel any pressure to say that, but what would you, where would you point people to? We'll start on this side. Um, I think other than the academic sources, I think preaching is just as Paul says in Timothy and Titus, teaching these things that they might teach these things. And so I think you need to engage other practitioners. The interviews that Dr. Thomas has on his website with scholars and practitioners is a wonderful place to start because you're engaging uh, both those worlds. Uh, Dr. Fire Brown is my second favorite interview because she, I need to adjust my vocabulary. I was about to say, she, she, she does that. She killed. <laughs> <laughs> she does this thing on calling about three-fourths through that is just like, I, I'm so I'm so struggling asking students, why are you even here saying you're a preacher uh, without that weighty thing of calling? So those are, 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 are wonderful. And then um, as far as relevance or just connecting, uh, Robert Smith, Doctrine That Dances, helps us think about communicating um, biblical truth in an engaging and an effective manner because you know, too often people are like, I, I believe the Bible, I got the truth, but they just poor at communicating. I mean, Jay, these, these people in contemporary culture are excellent communicators, and many times people who stand for the truth are not, and we just need to work harder at that. Uh, but Robert Smith and uh, the late uh, uh, James Earl Massey on uh, mm -hmm. sermon design, yeah. Um, yeah. too many people are just too many places saying anything and it's so scattery and even when you like them at the end of the sermon you don't know what they said uh so yeah. uh designing the sermon james yeah. earl massey yeah if you want to share i would say um the preacher and this is my way of answering the question the the preacher who is a preacher is called and if the preacher is called the preacher is sent and if sent they're sent with instructions. Mm -hmm. So the first place would be the gospel. Mm -hmm. you, we've all, if we're preachers, mm -hmm. we've been called and sent with instructions that have already been provided for us. And I'm not saying that's exhaustive. I'm just saying that it's primary. Um, I mm -hmm. personally, um, of course, depending on what course I'm teaching, the syllabus changes in terms of resources that are listed. But I... Um, strongly encourage all preachers to um, purchase uh, books on apologetics. Mm. And this is even for preaching mm -hmm. on apologetics, because again, if we are called and sent with instructions that be in the gospel to preach the gospel, then we need to be able to stand on it and help um, strengthen disciples and so that they can go out and make disciples because that's our primary task. In uh, any books that are on Christ-centered preaching, I know Brian Chappelle has one, um, I'm more inclined to expository preaching myself, uh, but yes, books that are, <laughs> that's right, yeah. um, books that are focused on Christ being centered. 
Gotcha. Let's move relatively quickly because Lisa's going to get me. We got to finish real fast. Anything you two want to recommend by chance? There is a, a, a Kenyatta Gilbert does a wonderful job with Exodus preaching, crafting sermons. Um, there is also a festival for Dale Andrews that came out this year, preaching prophetic care, preaching as prophetic care. Uh, both of them talk about uh, not only how to craft sermons, but our theological understanding in the midst of sermons. The other thing, because you said, where do you send preachers, right. is I, I have my students listen to all kinds of preachers, not just the ones with the sweet hoop, but listen to all kinds of preachers across ethnicities, uh, men and women, to try to understand what that craft looks like. Not the performative aspect, but the substantive aspect of what it is. Uh, for me, it's uh, the anthology of African-American preaching called Preaching with Sacred Fire that represents almost 400 years of African-American preaching. I think a lot of us, those of us who are African-American, we get up and we don't have enough of a connection with the tradition that's been passed to us. And I would want preachers to connect with the tradition and the ways in which our mothers and our fathers have preached, have analyzed scripture, have chosen texts, and it's uh, 103 sermons starting in 1750 to all the way, uh, pretty who, much to who the Who edited present. that book? Uh, Martha Simmons Martha and Simmons somebody and named Frank Thomas. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, that was eight and a half years of my life. So I Help me show some love and appreciation to this distinguished. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.